It is great to see you guys tonight. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, it is an encouragement to our hearts to uh, sing together. And tonight we have come to the end of the book of Titus. Uh, we have been working through all of the pastorals, and now we've come to this final pastoral uh, letter of Titus, and we're in its concluding section. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm one of those people who uh, I get have mixed feelings when it comes to conclusions. Uh, I've always enjoyed uh, books and reading and I've always enjoyed movies. And there's something about a conclusion that if I've really been enjoying the, the book or the movie or what have you, I always feel kind of bad that it's going to end. I, I kind of wish there was a way for it to, for it to keep going and, uh, and, and drag out the enjoyment a little bit further. Uh, and yet we've come now to the end of Titus. And I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience, but uh, maybe you're reading a book or, or watching a movie and you get to the end and uh, you don't particularly care for how the thing wraps up. Uh, you don't really like the way it ends. You've been enjoying the book and, or the movie and get to the end and you're like, why did it stop this way? I don't know how many guys have noticed that there are uh, on movies nowadays, uh, if, you, if you get a DVD, sometimes there are multiple endings that you can watch at the end where they were trying to figure out which ending they, they were going to do. And you can go and actually see that they were making choices of which ending they, they were going to do. I obviously can't do that with a book, but uh, there are movies like, out now. And you can say, oh, they, they thought about ending it one way, and then they decided to go this way. And uh, I'm concerned that sometimes we get to the end of biblical books, and uh, sometimes the end of the biblical book doesn't necessarily hit home to us. Uh, we get to the end, and we go... I've really been enjoying this letter, and I get to the end, and then it just kind of falls flat. Like, I'm not really sure uh, any of the people that we're talking about here at the end of this letter. I'm not sure why it's ending this way. Couldn't there have been, uh, couldn't there have been a different way, uh, a better way to end this thing? Uh, and as we head to the conclusion of the book of Titus, uh, we need to remember that the words we're going to look at uh, this evening are, are words from God, and they're intentional. Uh, there is a reason that Titus ends the way it does. And what we need to be able to do tonight is consider this, this conclusion. Uh, the body of Titus is at an end. And this is definitely Paul wrapping up this letter. And there are definitely some good lessons for us uh, to learn this evening, even from a conclusion. And so we need to do uh, some amount of hard work as we, as we consider some names and some things we don't, uh, don't normally think about. Uh, and yet there is, there is value in these words because just like all the rest of Scripture, all of Scripture is... God breathed, and all of it is useful. Every single bit of scripture, even the part that maybe we struggle a little bit or we wonder why did it have to be that way, uh, all of scripture is useful so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. And we're going to see that again tonight as we get to the conclusion of the book of Titus, that there is a reason that we have these words. So let's read together Titus 3. Let's read this conclusion from 12 down through 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And now this letter has come to a conclusion. And perhaps even now, as, you, as you've read down through that and uh, you've been reminded that these are the words we're going to look at tonight, you're going, all right, now what do we do with this? And what we're going to do with this tonight is just uh, spend our time going from verse to verse and, and saying, what, 
what is, what is Paul trying to say and what is the Holy Spirit meaning to convey through these words, all right? So let's just do a Bible study together uh, through these words as, as Paul concludes his letter to Titus. He writes, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to spend the winter there. And we read that verse and we encounter some names that uh, we're not familiar with, a place that we have no idea where it is. And Paul's personal plans, and we, we go, and how does that have any, any bearing on me, all right? I, I think this is reality when we come to a conclusion. We're going, all right, uh, what, it, what is the point? And, and really what we're going to see as Paul wraps up uh, in, in fine, Adam alliterative fashion, uh, we're going to see Paul's ministry plans, Paul's missionary partnerships, and Paul's membership priorities, all right? I like that, an M and a P for every single one of these. And uh, I knew that Adam would be pleased with me. All right. Uh, Paul had ministry plans, and let's see what they are in verse number 12. Uh, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you. When we read that when, it's a word that is a general when. It means whenever. Uh, it means that Paul isn't really sure when he's going to send these two guys, Artemis or Tychicus, but, but whenever it is, he wants Titus to do his best to come to him at Nicopolis. And what we're going to see throughout these uh, concluding verses is that there is a personal command from Paul to Titus. And, and that's why this outline is organized the way it is, because all of these things, his plans and his partnerships and his priorities are all based on the commands that we see to Titus. And so that's a helpful thing when you come to a section like this and you're going, what's, what's the point? It's helpful for you to look and say, what is, is there a, is there a command? Is there a principle? Um, what's the point? And we're actually going to see that there are concluding commands all the way through these final verses. And that's something we can hang our hats on and go, okay, this is this is what is important in Paul's mind, these final commands to Titus, these very personal commands. He says, whenever, whenever it is that I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, I want you to do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Now, um, how many of you know uh, who Artemis was and, uh, and where else he shows up in the New Testament? Anybody? Uh, does that ring any bells? Artemis ring any bells? Okay, Carol's got her cheat Bible tonight. She's got her little uh, electronic thing, and she looked up Artemis to find out all the other passages, and he didn't show up anywhere. And that reason is that he doesn't show up anywhere else. Uh, we don't have Artemis anywhere else in our New Testament. Uh, so thank you, Carol, for cheating. Uh, and no, no Artemis. Now, Tychicus, on the other hand, that is somebody who shows up regularly on other occasions that Paul mentions. Uh, there are at least five other appearances of Tychicus throughout the New Testament. Uh, for instance, he was one of the ones who was chosen to take the offering to Jerusalem. Uh, it was a very substantial amount of money that came from multiple churches that was going back to the mother church in Jerusalem. And so obviously Tychicus is someone who um, was responsible and could handle a very large sum of money. Um, Paul describes him in Ephesians 6 as a dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord. We know that he was sent to uh, Colossae. He might have even gone with the letter of Colossians. Uh, he went there on behalf of Paul. And we also know that he was later sent uh, from Rome in order to free up Timothy when Timothy was at Ephesus. So the picture we get of Tychicus is someone who is a faithful man of God. He is a devoted servant. Uh, he, is, um, he is apparently, uh, when Paul says, I'm going to send Artemis or Tychicus to you, and then I want you to come to me, Titus. He's saying, I'm sending Artemis or I'm sending Tychicus, and they're going to replace you. And so Tychicus was someone who was on the level of being able to replace Titus and able to replace Timothy, obviously someone who was trusted and valuable in the work, okay? Uh, there's something uh, that I think we should be able to find uh, 
enjoyable, even in these names that are foreign to us and situations that are foreign to us. When we get to the conclusion of letters, we get these little insights into the ministry work that was going on in Paul's day. And really what we see is Paul planning on how he wants to carry out the ministry as it goes on at Crete. And so he's going to send these two men. Obviously, Artemis must be someone he trusts on the same level as Tychicus, um, must be another faithful man of God. And he, he is saying at some time, and, I, and I'm not sure when, but at some point I'm going to send one of these two guys to you. So at some point in the future, I'm going to send somebody, and I haven't decided who. All right, This is Paul. He's, he's trying to make his plans for the ministry. And he says, what I want you to do is do your best. That's the command in verse 12. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. All right, Paul says, I've, I've decided I'm going to find a winter place, and I'm going to head to Nicopolis to do it. All right. Uh, one of the things that this means is that Paul was not there yet, right? Because he says, I'm going to spend the winter there. And he didn't say, I'm going to spend the winter here. So we know he's not at Nicopolis. Um, Nicopolis, uh, some of you uh, might be thinking of a certain brand name. Anybody think of a brand name that sounds something like Nicopolis? Nicopolis is a word for victory. Some of you might know. All right, Nike. All right. Uh, Nicopolis was named uh, as a city. Because the very first Roman emperor, his name was Augustus, he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra at this battle here at Nicopolis, all right? So that puts you in the, in the historical framework of, okay, we're talking about, man, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. You haven't thought about them since, what was that, like 11th grade history or something? Uh, but these are the events that's going on in, in Paul's day. And he's, he says, I've decided to spend the winter there. I, I've made a judgment call, and I think this is the place to go, all right? Paul is, is laying out ministry plans. Um, and there are at least a couple things um, that we should think about as we see Paul planning his ministry. Um, obviously, Paul has a concern for the people at Crete, all right? And it's a concern um, that, that he left Titus for in the very first place. What, why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? Remember from the very beginning of the letter, uh, these many weeks ago when we first started this letter, letter what, was, what was Titus supposed to do in Crete? One of the things that, that he was supposed to do was, anybody remember? Okay, established leadership, exactly right. And when we see here, we get to the end of the letter, and Paul is still concerned that there be someone who is qualified to lead these, these young leaders in this young church. He wants to leave someone there. He doesn't want to just send them out on their own and say, all right, you guys had Titus for a little while. Now you're fine. Uh, you'll be all right. No, he wants to send faithful men who are going to do the work of the ministry in Titus's place. Uh, because Paul says, I need you, Titus, and so I'm going to send a replacement for you. Um, there is... There is certainly the idea in this verse that Paul is concerned about ongoing ministry and it demands qualified and capable leadership. And that's what, what Artemis and Tychicus were going to provide. I also think that it's interesting and, and something that we should, we should certainly note from this verse um, is that there is a very certain element of uncertainty from Paul, right? He goes, well, whenever I get around to this, I'm going to send well, somebody, but I, I don't really know who. Uh, and I think I'm going to decide to spend my time at Nicopolis. Um, why, does it, why would that influence our thinking when we see Paul going, I'm not really sure what to do, but this is what I'm, this is what I'm planning on doing. Right? Well, one of the things that that should do in our thinking as we think about this historical situation is remember that, that God inspired the words of Paul. God did not inspire Paul. All right? Paul's not walking around um, as as this uh, guy who always knows all the answers, uh, who, is, who is somehow a, a, a super Christian that has all insight into, into everything, and he's walking around as an inspired person. 
In other words, he's always making all the right decisions at the right time. He knows all the future. Uh, he always knows the best thing to do, all right? Uh, even this, this note of uncertainty in verse 12 reminds us that, that God only inspired the words um, that, that Paul wrote down. He didn't give the man some kind of supernatural ability to always do uh, the right thing or always to know exactly what he should do. He's, he's laying these general ministry plans, and he's going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the best decision that I can. So Paul's not inspired. I think sometimes we think about Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, and we think about them as inspired people. And uh, we just need to remember that their words were inspired, but they're, they're making a plan. Uh, Paul's making ministry plans, and, and he wants Titus to come to him um, to do the work of the ministry. Okay? There's something about these, these details that we're going to see as this letter concludes um, that add a note of, of genuineness to the rest of this letter. And this is something else uh, that I'm saying. These, these conclusions help us, help us to learn. We see principles here. Um, we, we also see genuineness here. Um, there are a lot of people, especially in our day, that have, that have criticized uh, and, and have really rejected these New Testament letters as being valid letters from the people who wrote them. In fact, there are all these people who want to come up with these theories that um, these, these uh, guys writing under pseudonyms sent these letters. And so these aren't genuinely from Paul. Um, maybe somebody else did them because surely Paul couldn't have written all the letters that, that he said he wrote. Uh, and we get to these details, and those people really struggle with these details. Uh, for instance, we have Artemis, who never shows up anywhere else in the New Testament. Now, if you're writing a fake letter, it probably would be a bad idea to include somebody who no one uh, who is never referenced in any of the rest of the New Testament, all right? Uh, we get to Nicopolis, and our best guess is it's that one city, but there were actually nine different cities named Nicopolis in Paul's day. Uh, and so you wouldn't just throw out a place that, that could have been a, a variety of, of different places. Uh, if you were writing a, a letter and, and you wanted to make it look as, as original and as, and as real as possible, you'd include people that everybody knew and places that everybody was certain of. Uh, and, and this journey of Paul to Nicopolis never shows up in the book of Acts. Uh, and so if somebody was writing a, a pseudographical letter, it's really a bad idea to include details that no one has ever heard of before. And I think there's an element in these conclusions that um, strike a chord in us of, of the historical reality. This letter is genuine. It's actually coming from Paul. He's saying what is true. And it gives a stamp of genuineness to the whole rest of the letter, especially against those who would be critical of our New Testaments. Okay. So even that is a lesson for us to learn from these conclusions. So we see Paul laying some ministry plans. We also see that he had some missionary partnerships. Look in verse number 13 for our next command. Our next command is, do your best uh, to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Perhaps you're saying, I've heard that do your best before. Uh, that's right. We just, we just had it in verse number 12. Uh, this time... Uh, the first time he's told, do your best to come to me. The second time he says, I want you to do your best to send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. I want you to speed them on their way. All right. Anybody, uh, Carol, what's your, what's your little thing say about Zenos the lawyer? What you got over there? You got nothing. All right. Carol's got nothing. She's drawing a big blank with Zenos the lawyer. That's because Zenos the lawyer doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, we don't even know what kind of lawyer he was. Uh, maybe he was a Roman lawyer. Maybe he was a Jewish lawyer. We don't know, and, uh, and we don't need to know, or else the Bible would have told us. The point is, there are these two guys, Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. Now, Apollos, that is somebody that we know, uh, a name that, that should be at least familiar uh, in vague recollection for you. Apollos is that, uh, is that very unique preacher. Uh, he was known for being a brilliant orator. In fact, uh, his 
remarkability with preaching caused a very big problem in a certain city. Anybody remember the city where there was a big problem because he was such a gifted talker? Where was the city that there was a lot of a uh, problem because of Apollos? There's a letter in the New... Okay, Corinth. Very good. All right, so at the beginning of Corinth, you find out there were these people that said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. They were picking who their favorite Christian teacher was, all right? Uh, and, you know, I could throw out some current names where, where people say, I am of, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I claim this one particular preacher, and he's the one that is the best over all the rest of them. That was happening in Corinth. I prefer Paul. No, I prefer Apollos. I mean, Paul, he's so logical and, and everything, but Apollos, that guy can just flat out, he can preach. Uh, he was a man that Aquila and Priscilla took under their wing. Uh, he needed some extra help understanding the truth of the gospel, and so they took him and they trained him. Apparently, from what we can see in verse number 13, it seems that Zenos and Apollos are where? Where are they in verse 13? They're there in Crete, all right, because Paul says, look, Titus, I want you to speed them on their way. In other words, I want you to help them along. The idea of speed them on their way has the idea of outfit them for their journey. All right, I want you to uh, outfit them for their journey. And obviously, uh, that's something very necessary back in their day when uh, you didn't just hop on the plane and, uh, and fly on over to the next place. Uh, they needed help to be outfitted, whether they needed a ship, uh, whether they needed animals for their journey. They needed help uh, to be on their way. Obviously, to get off of Crete, they're going to have to get some kind of ship, and uh, they're going to need some supplies. And so... Paul says, I want you to speed them on their way. It's interesting to see Paul has uh, no ill will for Apollos. Uh, he's not the one that has caused the conflict with Apollos. Uh, it's the people of Corinth that were, that were being divisive over him. And it seems like it's actually very possible that Zenos the lawyer and Apollos were on Crete to do what? What can you, uh, what can you imagine that they might have been on Crete doing? He says, speed them on their way. In other words, they've come in and now they're going to leave. Uh, any guesses on what they might have been doing in Crete? What is, uh, what is Titus holding when he reads that instruction to speed them on their way? What's Titus holding in his hands? Can you, can you picture this? Put yourself back in Titus' shoes. When he reads these words, he's looking at he's looking at a letter. He's looking at a letter from Paul. All right. Now, did that letter come with a stamp on it? No, because you don't, ha you don't have the mail back then. Where did that letter come from? Well, somehow, somebody had to come and give it to Titus. And it seems perfectly reasonable that Zenos and Apollos were the ones who came and gave Titus the letter that now he's reading. And now Paul says, I tell you what, uh, they've come, and I want you to speed them on their way. They've got things to do, and I want you to join them in their missionary work. So Apollos and Zenos have swung down into Crete, this little island. Now they're on their way. So obviously they weren't staying there. It's perfectly reasonable for us to assume that they were bringing Titus the letter that Paul was writing them. There is no mail system uh, it, like there is in our day. And so Paul would have sent this letter with people that he trusted. And so he says, I want you to speed them on their way. And when he says, do your best, he puts the weight of personal responsibility on Titus. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to make sure they get on their way. And I want you to see that they lack nothing. I want you to make sure that they have everything that they need for their journey. Paul is very concerned about their missionary efforts. And he wants Titus to join them in their missionary efforts. I want you to send them on their way. And Titus, that's a personal responsibility on you. All right. Paul's been laying multiple responsibilities just on Titus throughout this letter. Uh, he keeps telling him things that he expects him to do. And one of the things that Paul expects Titus as a young pastor to do is to take care of the missionaries that have come through. And he wants, them, he wants him to send them on their way, lacking nothing. 
and he lays that weight on Titus. Titus, this is what I want you to do. All right. Now, Paul is not just concerned that, that Titus deal with these missionary partnerships. He's also, um, at the same time, thinking about a priority for the membership of the people of Crete. Look at verse number 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Why does Paul throw this verse out there? He'd been talking to Titus. He'd been telling him, look, I want you to come to me. I want you to send these missionaries on their way. And then he throws out this thing about our people. All right, what's the point? Well, the point is that Paul has a priority for membership. And the priority for the people in the church at Crete is that those people learn to devote themselves to good works. All right, does that ring a bell in anybody's mind uh, of something that Paul has already said? If you were here last week, uh, you heard that exact same command um, back from verse number 8 in Titus chapter 3. Uh, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. All right, this is a priority in Paul's mind. In fact, we've seen it throughout the book of Titus. Paul expects the members of the church to learn to devote themselves, to give themselves to this thing of doing good works. So I want you... I want you to let them learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. What would be the case of urgent need that Paul has in mind when he says, I want these people to learn how to do good works, Titus? What is the urgent need that is before them right at that exact moment? It's the urgent need that Paul has already told Titus to take care of. That's exactly right, to get Zenus and get Apollos on their way. Um, there is a need. They need to take care of it. Maybe they weren't expecting them to show up. It's not like they penciled them in on the calendar, and here they are, and they've been preparing for this. Um, and, and really what we see in verse number 14 is that Paul doesn't say the people need to send Zenus and Apollos on their way. He says Titus needs to, and you need to let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. In other words, Titus is yet again going to be a model, an example of what everybody should have been doing, of what should have been a priority for everybody at Crete. It should have been a priority for, for everyone, at, all the Christians at Crete, to learn to devote themselves to good works. And that should have been in their mind. And the reason they, they should have cared about good works is so that they could help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I think a really neat gem of a lesson as we come to this conclusion is, is that faithfulness comes in ministering to the needs of others. And fruitfulness comes in ministering to the needs of others. And that fruitfulness takes preparation and it takes devotion ahead of time. Paul says, look, I, I want everyone to learn to give themselves to good works so they don't turn out to be unfruitful. You see, if the people hadn't devoted themselves to doing what is good, then they weren't going to be prepared to be fruitful. And there's just a neat lesson in that for us. Titus obviously was somebody who had devoted himself to good works. He was ready. When the case of urgent need came up, and the case of Apollos and Zenos came up, he was ready to do a good work and speed them on their way. He was prepared because he had already been devoted to good works. We need to remember again, uh, and, and I'll ask you to go all the way back to Titus chapter 1 again, what was something that was a reputation of the people at Crete? What was part of their reputation as, as a people group? Okay, they were liars. That's part of their reputation. What else? Okay, they were also known as lazy gluttons. And part of the good works that Paul has in mind is actually working. 
and doing good. Instead of, instead of being lazy, he actually expected them to do work. Uh, and that was a good thing for people who were lazy and gluttons, uh, sitting around eating and not doing any work. Now, if they weren't doing any work, they weren't making any money. And if they didn't make any money, they didn't have any ability, or if they didn't even have any goods, uh, not even necessarily money, but even if they didn't have any supplies, they didn't have any ability to do what? to meet cases of the share and to meet any case of urgent need. And so you have people, and Paul says, look, these Cretans need to learn to devote themselves to good works, which includes working, so that when the time comes, they can be fruitful. They can actually minister to the people around them. That is a gem of a lesson for all of us. Uh, We need to learn to devote ourselves uh, to good works so that when the time comes, we are ready and able to meet the need that arises. Uh, Because if not, we're going to be unfruitful. In other words, unable to meet the demand of the moment, unable to have any kind of spiritual fruit. For us to have spiritual fruit, it takes devotion to good works ahead of time, not just in the moment of crisis, the moment of urgent need. And so Paul says, look, Titus, this is a golden opportunity for them to learn to give themselves to good works so that when there is an urgent need, hey, they are ready to meet that need. That is a priority for membership. Well, Paul's priority is not just for the members to learn to devote themselves to good works, Get down to verse number 15, and even his conclusion, we see Paul's priorities for the church. It says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. He says, everybody who is with me, all of the Christians who are with me, they send their greetings to you. To you, Titus. They are sending their greeting. They are sending their affection. You see, there there is a unity and there is a togetherness uh, within the bond of Christianity. Uh, there certainly was uh, in that we see in this verse in Paul's mind and with the people who were with Paul, Titus was someone who they longed to see. They sent greetings. They wanted to welcome him. Uh, it's actually possible when it says they send greetings to you, that there was an attached list to the letter that came with Paul, a list of greetings from various people, kind of like an appendix or, or an index that comes at the end. And all these people might have added on various greetings to Titus uh, and to others at, at the church that they knew because there is a togetherness. Uh, in the gospel. And, and it's amazing that, that even in this, there is a togetherness that, that spans miles and miles. We, we think that Paul was most likely somewhere in Macedonia. Wherever he is, he's miles away from Crete at this point. And yet there are people who are sending their greetings to Titus because they care about him. And he says, and, and we're not just sending greetings to you, Titus. I want you to greet those who love us in the faith. Uh, that's a really interesting thing to see Paul's greeting, but to see the limits of Paul's greeting. Who is it that Paul wants Titus to greet? Who is the greeting for? Those who love us in the faith. You see, Paul's not just saying, I want you to give a big hug and a squeeze to everybody that's there. Paul's saying, I want you to greet those who love us in the faith. Because again, to go back to chapter one, not everybody who claimed to be Christian, not everybody who is in the church at Crete actually loved Paul in the faith. There were actually those who were denying the truth of the gospel that, that Titus needed to confront and say, hey, you guys are in the wrong. Uh, you're actually teaching uh, falsehood. These are not people uh, who Paul was going to greet with the same greeting that he gives to those who love him in the faith. And I think uh, even that is a, is a word to all of us. In our day, um, where, where love to all people uh, is celebrated as, as the greatest good, we're supposed to be loving to all and all love us. Uh, Paul has a very particular greeting for those who love in a certain kind of way. And it's a love that is in the faith. Uh, it's a reminder to us that, 
that love is so much more than some kind of um, quasi-sentimental expression of emotion. Uh, love comes for those who are within the boundary of the faith. Uh, and there, there is an ability that we have to love each other in the faith, in, in the truth. In other words, the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. Um, it is appropriate for that to be the sphere in which there is a special affection of the church, for there to be special greeting for those who love, not just some kind of generic, I, you know, I just love all people and isn't that great. It's those who love us in the faith. And that is a unique subset that Paul is particularly concerned to greet because that's where his priority is. Priority is not, I'm just going to open my arms to all of Crete. Uh, he's saying, I want to greet those who love us and who love us in the faith. That's the group that Paul is concerned about. And we too should be people who love others in the faith. Um, it, is, it is right for us. Uh, it is right for us to have an affection, a warm affection, a love, a devotion to each other for those who are in the faith. Uh, and we see Paul here greeting all those people in Crete um, who he uh, hasn't seen in a while, and yet he's concerned that he sends back his greeting to them. I want you to greet those, all those ones who love us in the faith. And he concludes, not with just a greeting, but also this final priority from the lips of Paul. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. It's that you all uh, that gives us a reminder that although this letter is a very personal letter to Titus, this is a letter that Paul obviously expected everybody to read and to see. All right? It's a personal letter that Paul had already expected that everybody at Crete was going to read and share. Because he says, I want grace to be with you all. And he's just been sending all this focused time on Titus, Titus do this, Titus do that, uh, Titus do this. And yet clearly the expectation from Paul is this is something that everybody's going to read and everybody's going to be aware of. And what I want to be with everybody, with you all, what I want to be with you is grace. This young and growing church desperately needed grace. And we have had some opportunities as we, as we have studied the book of Titus uh, to see Paul's emphasis, his priority on grace. Uh, and it has been a wonderful thing. The grace of God has appeared and it brought salvation to all kinds of people. People in all states, slaves, young, old, free, all people. This salvation, grace has brought it. And that grace has taught us to renounce ungodliness, to say no to evil. And Paul has elevated grace and talked about grace. In chapter 3, he's talked very in, a, in a, just a very long sentence that might be one of the fullest descriptions we have of salvation, that salvation is all of grace and not of works in any way. Uh, and so it's when God's kindness and his grace appeared. It, he saved us, not that we saved ourselves, not by works that we did, but according to his own mercy, he did it. He gave us the Holy Spirit, who he poured out richly. He's, I mean, Paul, in this so short letter, has already emphasized over and over again the necessity of grace. And now he ends it with just this simple statement, grace be with you all. Because that is, that is a priority in Paul's mind. His priority is that grace be with you. The letter has come to an end. And, and Titus's ministry is about to come to an end. Paul's ministry has come to an end here on the island of Crete. And yet what Paul's concerned about is not to just keep dragging on this letter. It's not to just keep adding more and more things. The time has come for this letter to end. And Paul says, do you know what I want to leave you with? I don't want to leave you with 20 more commands. I don't want to end this letter any differently than what I've ended it. I've ended this letter with the one thing that is needful for you to live out the things that I've asked you to do in this letter. And that one thing that is needful, that priority, is for grace to be with you all.
Clearly, Paul is saying, this is what you need. Now what you need to live out the truth of this letter is grace. And, and that same thing is true for all of us. If we are actually going to be changed by this book of Titus and the study that we have had, we're going to need the grace of God. Uh, we're going to need his unmerited favor to remember what his instructions are in this book and then have the strength to live out what he has already said. I wonder sometimes, uh, it's not normal for us to to end a greeting uh, with grace be with you all. And I, I know sometimes we do it. And uh, you know, I wonder if we don't wish grace on one another. I mean, you might think it really strange when we left tonight. Instead of saying good night, I said, uh, grace be with you tonight. And you're like, that's kind of stilted and, and awkward. Uh, and maybe it's because it's not cultural. Uh, but I want you to think about something uh, this evening. Do we, do we not wish God's grace on each other uh, because we haven't grasped similarly the same sense of priority and need that Paul had. And maybe it's not just a cultural issue. Maybe we don't, maybe it's not just that Paul said grace and we say, have a good day. Uh, maybe Paul was just enamored and entranced with the idea of grace. And he said, this just filters through everything. Uh, this, this is what is central. This is what matters. This is what I want most for you. I want God's grace for you. Uh, why would that be so uh, so awkward and so odd for us to wish God's grace on each other? Uh, because that is the one thing that we so desperately need to be changed people. Uh, and we've got grace as the name of our church. Um, we, we talk about grace on occasion. But has the thinking of grace actually seeped into our minds so much that is the central priority that we say, what I, what I want for you and, and what we'll deal with any myriad of further issues, um, or, or our need to apply the truth, what, what we'll deal with all of that is God's grace. That, that's what you need. You need his grace. And if you have his grace, uh, then you'll have all that is necessary to live the Christian life. Uh, that was clearly Paul's priority, his heartbeat. What, what I want for you guys is God's grace. And that should be the same desire we have for each other, and certainly the desire that we as pastors have for you, that God's grace would be with you, his favor that you don't deserve and that trains you uh, to renounce ungodliness and live a godly life. Uh, his grace is what we all need. And it is so easy. It is just so easy for all of us to sink into a works mentality. And I know we say this over and over again, but it's because it's true. It is easy for us to go, okay, I understand that works don't save me, but now works are going to be what's most important in my Christian life. And, and we, we tend to emphasize God's grace and salvation and then forget about God's grace the rest of the time. Uh, what should be on, on the tip of our tongues? And I'm not saying you have to go out tonight. You're going to be more spiritual to go out tonight. Instead of telling me good night, you say, grace be with you, brother. Uh, but if that were more on the tip of our tongues, if that were more in our minds, that, that what we want for each other is God's grace, if that informed our prayer lives, when we prayed for each other, we prayed that, that God's grace would be evident and known and lived out, we would be closer to a biblical priority than not. Paul's heartbeat here is, I want God's grace to be with you all. I've given you these commands, Titus, and now, now what you need is grace from God to live these things out. Well, we come to the conclusion of the book of Titus, and there's always a little bit of, of sadness as we come to the end. And yet, even in this conclusion, uh, we need to remind you that these are the words of God uh, that teach us, that instruct us. And even if we have to do some hard work of going back and saying, who are these guys that we're talking about and why does it matter? Uh, there are lessons for us to learn from this conclusion. Let me, let me give you one last thing to think about as you think about the value of a conclusion. One last thing for you to consider tonight, the value of a conclusion. 
<clears throat> and that is that it reminds us of the validity of our hermeneutic, all right? You go, what? Come on now. <laughs> That's the end of the message. Now, um, our hermeneutic is our, our principle of interpretation, how we interpret Scripture, all right? And a conclusion like this reinforces that we are approaching Scripture the right way when we say, I want to understand what this letter says in its context. I want to understand. Uh, I don't want to get this letter to us. I want to go back and understand what's the point here. Because this conclusion, uh, this conclusion reminds us that there is a concrete detail that's in the book of Titus. And it is not some kind of spiritual uh, letter that comes down from the sky with no connection to the rest of life. It actually has an integral connection. There, there are stories that go behind the book of Titus. There, there is historical realities that go behind the book of Titus. It just didn't come in a vacuum, all right? And we can't study the Bible as if it just came in a vacuum, all right? It's not like these gold plates just came out of the sky. Oh, wait, what am I talking about? Uh, some of you know. All right, it's, it's not like there's just some kind of religious teaching that, that came out of nowhere and, uh, and the Bible is just some, some random spiritual teaching. Uh, the Bible comes to us in letter form, all right? Um, Paul, a very real man, Paul, was writing to Titus, a very real person, while he was on the island of Crete. And if we're going to understand our Bibles correctly, if we're going to have the right hermeneutic or the way we go about interpreting it, the point is we need to understand what's going on in the context because there was a very specific context. Because think about it. If God wanted, he could have just cut this conclusion out, right? He could have just told us all the commands. He, he could have just started off in verse number five and, and just started with this bunch of commands. I'm just going to give you command, 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 and then end. And then he doesn't. He gives us this historical framework that we see. This is, this is a letter one man wrote to another man. It's a letter that is inspired by God. And so we, even how we approach our Bible study, a conclusion like this reaffirms our heartbeat to say, I want to know what was going on. What did the author intend, uh, which is something that we say all the time. What, what was the author trying to say? Because he was trying to say something specifically to a specific person at a specific time. And so we say, what did he intend? What was Titus supposed to understand? And that's how we come to the meaning. All right. We, we don't come to the meaning by importing our own ideas, uh, by trying to find relevance just to our day, we say, well, what's going on here? And that's how we find meaning. And so a conclusion like this reaffirms our hermeneutic, okay? And that's just a side note, um, but something that I think you should consider every time you read a conclusion. Hey, I'm reading a book, especially when it comes to the conclusions we have in the New Testament. I'm reading a book that has a historical context. And if I'm going to understand it right, I need to understand the historical context and why it's written, Okay. So one final review, what we've seen in the book of Titus. What we've seen in the book of Titus is that duty and doctrine go hand in hand. Duty and doctrine are married and they must not be divorced. Because we saw in chapter number one that Paul's heartbeat for Titus is, I want you to establish leadership, but it's a certain kind of leadership. It's a qualified leadership. Because you see the doctrine that the leaders are supposed to teach must go hand in hand with how they live. Because we also saw in chapter 1 that while we needed qualified leaders, there were a bunch of people who were insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. There are those people who didn't fit as good leaders because their lives didn't match what they were teaching. Because duty and doctrine go hand in hand. And so leadership must be qualified according to the biblical qualifications. We saw in chapter number 2, uh, not just leaders have to live out the truth that, that they believe and claim, but also whether you're an older man or an older woman or a young man or a young woman or you're a slave, whatever condition you're in, we have to live out the truth of the gospel. 
the truth that Paul emphasizes so greatly uh, in verse number 11 down through 14. We actually have to live out our theology. Our theology is not some kind of academic head thing uh, that we do on Sundays. Our theology actually should dictate how we live, no matter what class of people uh, we are in. We have to live out the truth because duty and doctrine go hand in hand. And then we got down to chapter number three, and we saw that not only within the church are there requirements for all, all different ages, but we are even required to relate to those outside of the church, whether it's government, um, whether it's all people who we have to be kind to and generous to, um, whether it's those who are denying the truth, who, who are loving foolish controversies, whether it's the divisive person uh, who needs to be warned and then avoided. We have to, our, our doctrine, what we say is our theology, has to dictate how we live. And what our doctrine is, is a grace doctrine. Uh, we, don't, we don't teach a doctrine of works. In, in all respects, we teach a doctrine of grace. And that should change how we treat the people around us and how we go about living the truth of the book of Titus. Because God's grace is what all of us need, just like it's what everybody at the island of Crete needed. Okay? All right. That's the book of Titus. Uh, a lot here for us to continue to think about. And continue to pursue God's grace for us all to live. I thought as we concluded though uh, tonight uh, we do have a little bit of time. And so I thought this evening uh, well, we don't have much time. Uh, anybody have any concluding questions from the book of Titus? Next week we're going to have a general Q&A. You can ask a question about anything. But are there any following uh, any follow-up questions on something we've said specifically from Titus uh, that has stirred a question in your mind? Yes sir, Dick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a word to, it's a word to hear from Dick. I appreciate that. And yeah, that's right. That is a, uh, and I appreciate, I even appreciate your, uh, your working on this book, uh, Dick, and uh, we have, we have not moved slowly th- through the book of Titus. It's not like, it's not like this is Matthew where uh, six years later we're still here. Uh, we have moved rapidly through this book, and I hope you'll, you'll continue in that. There's no reason just because we're not uh, still teaching it that we can't continue to work, and, and that is a valuable discipline for us to continue to meditate on the word, and, and something I hope to be true in all of our lives, whether it's a lesson we hear in Matthew or something from Titus, it needs to be something that we continue to rehearse in our minds, something that, continu- that stays in our thoughts. Um, and, and actually, that's part of even the reason of, of some of the things we've talked about on, on Sunday night. You know, it's just so easy for us to get together on a Sunday and we hear a message and we walk out, and it's easy for that to just be the end. Uh, that, that's the last that we're going to think about, Titus 3, 12 through 15, uh, until the next time you hear somebody preach about it. And uh, that's just no way for us to know and live the word of God. 
It actually has to be something, something that is so essential that it's in our thoughts and it's in our minds and we're constantly working, working it over and working how to, how to live it out. And, uh, and I hope that's an encouragement to you, uh, even as we, as we think about this continuing our Sunday nights. Something that should be a part of our lives is um, working through the passages that, that we have heard preached publicly. Uh, and, and for that to be so much more than just the attention that you give tonight but for that to be something that carries you into your week, whether you add it to your personal devotion or your family time. Uh, we need to be spending more time in these passages than just what we spend from uh, me or Adam talking and you sitting there listening. It needs to be something that you, um, you pour yourself into. And there's a guarantee that there is a blessing for you. The more time you'll spend in these passages, the more they'll change you. Uh, the more we'll see our Christ, the more we'll be different. All right, one last one from Maxine. Right, absolutely. And, and I think the reason we can say that is really what we saw at the beginning of chapter 3. I mean, because of our understanding of grace, because of our understanding of salvation, that should drive how we treat the people around us. I mean, that's a lesson from the first couple verses of chapter number 3. Our understanding of salvation actually changes how we treat the people around us. So I think that, well, I mean, it, the grace that, that is with us, it should naturally lead to an overflow. So you're right, there is, a, there is an overflow um, but really what Paul's wanting is for God's grace to, to, be, uh, to be with them. And certainly if God's grace, if we know and are thinking about God's grace, uh, that will change how it will be with all of us. You know, the, more, the better job you do as an individual meditating on the grace of God, the better job you're going to do of showing that grace to the people at our church and the people around you. Absolutely. So we need to know that grace and it will, it will be lived out the better we know it. So yes, in that sense, there will be grace with all of us. Uh, and yet it's the grace from God that Paul uh, so desperately wants for these people um, because that will change how they think about God and it'll change how they, definitely how they interact with each other. Yeah. Okay, thank you all so much for, for coming this evening. Uh, we're going to close in a word of prayer. Uh, if you are able to help us out tonight uh, with our nursery, we'd love to, love to get that help as we, uh, as we finish uh, cleaning up over there. Uh, hope you can come next week for our final uh, Q&A and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come tonight. Father, we are grateful for the, this conclusion to the book of Titus. Uh, thank you that all of your scripture uh, is profitable to us and it affects our thinking. Uh, I pray that we would go from here not being content that we finish studying another book, but to be changed by the truth of the book of Titus. I pray the things that we have studied would stick with us. Uh, we know that now we are responsible for the things that you have said. Uh, and I pray that we would have the grace that we so desperately need to live out the truths of the book of Titus. Uh, we admit that we need your grace. Uh, we want your grace to be with us uh, in, our, um, in ourselves, for ourselves individually, and also in our interaction with each other. Uh, we need your grace in our church, and so we ask for it, uh, and, we, and we look for your grace in your word through the means that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.